Let's open our Bibles then to the book of Jeremiah and chapter 37. Jeremiah chapter 37. This passage is set about 600 years before the Lord Jesus came into this world. So 2,600 years ago, this incident took place. Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 14. Then Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you something. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I declare it to you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you advice, you will not listen to me. So Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord lives, who made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hand of those men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. The city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the king of the Babylon's, of Babylon's princes, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hand and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver you, Please obey the voice of the Lord, which I speak to you. So it shall be well with you, and your soul shall live. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the word that the Lord has shown me. Now behold, all the women who are left in the king of Judah's house shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes. And those women shall say, your close friends have set upon you and prevailed against you. Your feet have sunk in the mire. They have turned away again. So they shall surrender all your wives and your children to the Chaldeans. You shall not escape from their hand, but shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon. And you shall cause this city to be burned with fire. Well, this is God's word and we thank him for it. It's a very strange passage, but I trust by the time we get to the end, it will make very clear sense to us. Back in the 18th century, the Church of England was as dead as a doornail. Nothing was happening. The majority of clergymen didn't even believe it was just a job with a decent income. But suddenly, God's Spirit began to blow here and there throughout the nation. And that was the beginning of what was called the Evangelical Revival. And that revival threw up some very interesting names. George Whitfield, John Senick, James Hervey, and of course, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. And while most folk have not heard of some of the other leaders of the great 18th century revival, just about everyone has heard of John Wesley. 
John and Charles were educated people. They were both Oxford scholars. Their father was an Anglican minister. So was their grandfather, and so was their great-grandfather. They had pedigree to their name. John spoke seven languages. And when he was speaking to his brother in public, so that the average person in the congregation or in the street couldn't eavesdrop, they spoke to each other in Latin. And then when they wrote to each other, they were fearful that people would read these letters if they fell into the wrong hands. And so between them, they, they worked out a code whereby they could write to each other and be honest with each other without anyone knowing what on earth they were writing about. Well, we thank God, and obviously they don't thank God, but we thank God that a number of decades ago, the code was broken, and it was pretty revealing stuff. Not, not sensual, but just speaking honestly to each other about the state of their heart. The opposition they received from the church was unbelievable. You need to understand this one thing. Religion cannot stand the Lord Jesus Christ. The biggest enemy of Christianity is, is religion, even the Christian religion that doesn't acknowledge the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. The opposition that the Wesleys, George Whitfield, Benjamin Ingham, James Hervey, John Senek faced, unbelievable. But John Wesley had one motto by which he lived his life. And I want to speak about that because it is a biblical principle. Here's his motto always look a mob in the face. Now, I thought if I sent over my sermon title, I was asked, what are you preaching on? I thought if I sent to Richard, always look a mob in the face, he'd say, how rude. What a way to speak of our congregation here at the Crescent. But I'm going to take the risk of looking a mob in the face and speaking to the mob. Because John West has said, once you start running, you have to run for the rest of your life. And we all know that, do we not, in our own personal lives. Once you turn your back on an issue because it frightens you and you start running, when do you stop? So he said, never be afraid of a mob. Look it in the face and walk through it. I appreciate he had a rough ride now and then, but amazingly, he survived. But you know what is fascinating? When he looked a mob in the face, he often came away with salvation. He was saved against the odds. As I thought about that and meditated on a certain portion of God's Word, different portions of God's Word began to spring up here and there. What I want to do tonight is speak on a biblical principle, and that is this. Whenever you go to the very heart of the storm, as ridiculous as it may be, that is where you'll find salvation. Salvation is always found in the teeth of the storm. Let me just illustrate this for the rest of the time that I'm going to be standing here. The most obvious, of course, is, is Noah. God said to Noah, I want you to build an ark because I'm going to judge the earth. And Noah, to my understanding, said, Lord, what's an ark? I've never seen an ark. What is an ark? And God gave Noah the blueprint for building an ark. We know he didn't sort of come up with the idea. God showed him the blueprint. And so he built the ark. And the Bible says that he was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. How many folk listened? Well, I don't know. But we do know he had a listening. 
that only seven people responded, and that was his family. And God said to him, get into the ark. And so he got into the ark, and the door of the ark was closed. The Bible says God closed the door of the ark. And then all hell was let loose. A storm came. The Hebrew is very powerful. God unzipped the heavens, and the fountains of the earth opened up. It wasn't like a wet weekend that got wetter and wetter. Suddenly, the heavens just gushed with millions of gallons of water. The earth opened up, and the earth was flooded. I don't know if you've ever been in a real, real storm. Several years ago, I had the privilege of going down to the Antarctic for three weeks. Not on one of these big kind of holiday cruise ships, but it was a small ship, and we went down to the Antarctic. We were caught in a storm. And one of the privileges of being part of a small boat is that you could go to the bridge every day and speak to the captain. And I love to do that. And we went through a violent storm. Believe me, I was terrified. When I went to the bridge in the morning, it was opened up. I, I spoke to the captain and said, what was it like last night? He said, 26-foot waves. 26-foot waves. No wonder I was terrified. And then people said to me, how are you getting to Belfast? And I say, I'm sailing from Kern Ryan. Oh, I don't like sailing. Give over. It's a park lake. Imagine being in the ark in the middle of the flood with the whole water of the world swirling around. But amazingly, the man who was in the heart of the storm came out. But everyone else was drowned. By the way, I was brought up to believe that Noah is a wonderful picture of the rapture, that, that God took him through the trouble. Believe me, I would not have liked to have been on that boat. And here's a man who looked a storm right into the very teeth of it. But amazingly, he came out alive. But everyone else perished. The very same is true in relation to Moses. Moses spent 40 years of his life living in the palace in Egypt. And then things went badly wrong. And I'm so glad that things went badly wrong for him and he cleared off because who hasn't had a situation where things have gone badly wrong? And he lived in the wilderness for 40 years and after 40 years, God said, I want you to go back to the palace and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You're joking, Lord. Me? There? This is a man who'd been looking after someone else's sheep for 40 years wasn't even his own flock. So he was someone else's shepherd. Uh, by the way, if you work with sheep, I, I, I don't mean to offend you, but if you work with sheep and you're sat next to somebody, they know about it. They have that fresh smell to them. And here's a man who eventually goes to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, coming from the backside of the desert with his brother, you know how the Egyptians looked well-shaven, smooth, clean, wearing white linen? And here's these two rustic shepherds coming from the wilderness. And he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh, are you, uh, Moses, are you on a death wish? 
Pharaoh could just say, who on earth are you? Get out of the palace. In fact, I wonder, how did he get through security? And here's a man who went to the very heart of the storm. He looked a mob in the face. He lived. So did the Hebrew people. What happened to the Egyptians? Oh, they died. Imagine in 21st century society today, you're going to Mr. Putin and say, Mr. Putin, get out of Ukraine. Get out. Who are you? Well, I've been sent by the Lord. Rearrange this sentence. Off push. You wouldn't survive. You would not survive even getting in the Kremlin, let alone coming out of it. But Moses goes to the heart of a storm. Let my people go. He lives. And the Egyptians die. And then, when they eventually did get out of Egypt, they, they came to the Red Sea. There's the sea in front of them. On one side is Pyahirath, on the other side is Baal Zephon. Behind them are the Egyptians. And God says, Moses, just wave your stick over the sea. Just wave your stick. And leave the rest to me. And sure enough, the sea opened. The Bible says God sent a very strong east wind throughout the night. And I appreciate the next chapter is poetry, but the poetry of the Hebrew says this, the waters froze. Whether that's literal or not, I really don't know, or whether it's just poetic language. But the idea is this, the walls were solid. And the children of Israel passed through the storm. By the way, imagine walking through the sea thinking, is this going to go any second? Do you think children touch, get your hands off? What was it like? We kind of read these things and think, oh, that was nice. I think I'd be terrified. And walking through this corridor of, of water with the Egyptians after me, and yet, amazingly, the Hebrews lived. And the Egyptians drowned. Always look a mob in the face. Don't run. The principle is there. I suppose my favorite one is found in 2 Kings chapter 7. Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern part of the nation, and they were being attacked by the Syrians. And again, I, I, don't, I don't know how people lived in those days when you lived in a city and suddenly you found a huge enemy around the walls of the city where you're living, thinking, I think this is the end of my life because they're just going to sit here until, until we fall and then they'll come in. So either I'll starve to death or I'll be thirsty and there'll be no water to quench my thirst or they'll come in and kill me. It's, it's, it's a no-no situation. I'm finished. And so that we're told that the Syrians were there surrounding the city. It was a siege. But, but there were some lepers outside, four of them. They've got no food either. If there's famine in the city, well, all that they do is get the scraps from the city. If there's no food, we get no scraps. And one of them said, well, if we stay here, we die. Let's go to the enemy. 
Could you imagine four lepers going to the Russian army? Saying, do you have any spare food? And when they got there, the enemy had fled. And all the camp was there. And there was the gold, it says. And there was the silver. And all the clothes. And all the food. And these people who'd lived on the breadline, dying, looking death in the face, you can imagine putting the clothes on, going, how does this look? Look at this. We haven't eaten this for years. Where were all the Syrians? God made them flee. They said, if we sit here, we perish. Let's go. They went right to the heart of the storm. And they came back with salvation, just like Noah, just like Moses, just like the children of Israel. And then in our reading tonight, how about this? The king was Zedekiah. And outside, not Samaria, but outside Jerusalem, were camped the Babylonians, the most powerful war machine in the Middle East at that time. And the king was scared. He was called Zedekiah, and he, he knew of Jeremiah the prophet. Everyone knew Jeremiah the prophet. What a misery he was. God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I'm going to give you a difficult task. I want you to speak my word. Don't go to any weddings or any funerals. Just speak my word. Can you imagine what the neighbors said about this man? He calls himself a man of God. You know, when, 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 when my wife died, he didn't even come to the funeral. He calls himself a prophet of the Lord. He speaks of the word of the Lord. That man hadn't the courtesy to come to my wife's funeral. Where's his heart? And then there was a wedding in the village. Do you know something? Old mystery girls didn't even come to the wedding to rejoice. What's up with the man? But there was a reason why God said no weddings, no funerals. He lived a very solitary life, did Jeremiah. The king said, Jeremiah, you can see things are difficult. The Babylonians are outside. What do I do? He said, surrender. He said, if you surrender, you'll live. But if you don't, you'll die. And tell your people, if they open the gates and go to the, the, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they'll live. But if you keep your gates closed, they'll come and knock your gates open, and you will die, and the city will be burnt. I tell you what, you've got to know the Lord to speak like that. We know from history and from Scripture that some actually went out to the Chaldeans and surrendered and said, we're here. We've come from the city. We surrender to you. What a risk that is. You know, handing yourself over to the enemy. They could just shoot me, to use 21st century language. Could have put a bullet in the back of my head. I'm finished. You're at their mercy. But these people marched out of Jerusalem and went to the enemy and said, we're here. They lived. Zedekiah? He ran. The Bible says all his sons were killed before his eyes and then his eyes were put out and he was carted off and thousands of Jews were slain. It's madness going to the teeth of the storm but if you do, you'll come out saved. If you don't, 
you'll lose. When they did get to Babylon, some interesting things happened. Let me just give you one or two things that happened. Before all this, Nebuchadnezzar came down and took a, a number of hostages up to Babylon. And the idea was, if you rebel in Jerusalem, we just kill these hostages. So you just better think. We know the name of one of those hostages. It was a man called Daniel. We also know of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these young men were given this strict diet by the king of the most powerful empire at that time, Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel said, how do I put this? We're not eating it. We're not defiling ourselves with the king's meat. You are a teenager. You are a prisoner. You're in somebody else's land. You're at their mercy. If you want to live, you zip your lip and eat what they ask you to eat. He said, no. And Daniel looked a storm right in the face. And he lived. When you just turn on a few chapters, you come across Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, those three men who refused to bow down to that statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they were told, if you don't bow down, you'll be thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Speaking personally, I cannot think of a more painful way to die being thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. Many of God's choice saints in the past have been martyred by being burnt at the stake. It's a horrendous way to die. And we're told that they heated up the furnace, that is the Babylonians, seven times hotter. And Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah said to the monarch, we refuse to bow down to this statue. And we believe that our God can deliver us, but if not, it doesn't matter, for he is still God. You don't say that to Nebuchadnezzar. What happened? They went into the fire. And one appeared like the Son of God. And the men who threw them into the fire, they were incinerated by the heat of the fire. And here's this principle again. Look a mob in the face. Speak honestly. Speak with conviction. God is with you. And God cleared and God vindicated in that case. The same happened with Daniel. Most Sunday school pictures of Daniel have him as a kind of a youngish boy in the lion's den. Daniel was in his 80s when he was thrown in the lion's den. You know, when, when you get older, you say to yourself, you know, I fought so many battles, forget it, leave it to the younger ones. I've done my day of fighting. And here's a man who just had to keep his mouth shut for one month. No prayer must be prayed to any God except in honor of our king, and as was his custom, which is all his life, Daniel opened his windows and prayed three times a day to the God of Israel. Someone eavesdropped 
He was brought before the judge. He was sentenced and he was thrown in the lion's den. But he came out alive. Scripture is quite funny at times. It has the king of Babylon pacing up and down and then going down and saying outside the lion's den in the morning, Daniel, are you there? You don't say that to a man who's been thrown into a den of lions. And God, he closed the mouths of the lions. And a man, he looked at the storm in the face and came out with salvation. And the men who plotted it went into the lion's den and were devoured. Strange, isn't it? The Egyptians who plotted all this, they're drowned. But the Israelites were saved. The men who mocked Noah drowned. But Noah, who went to the heart of the storm, was saved. This is biblical principle. And then we come to the life of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus feared nobody. The fear of man is a snare. No wonder God said to Isaiah and to Jeremiah, listen, I'm giving you a tough job, but do not be afraid of people's faces. It's, it's all right dealing with principles in the abstract. It's when you have to look somebody in the face and explain it. That's very hard. It's all right thinking, I think the boss is a bit of a tyrant until he calls you in and says, well, how's it going? Well, it's like this, you're a tyrant. It's great in your head when you're laying in bed at night thinking, I'm going to say this. But when you see him, you melt. Jesus feared nobody. So in John's Gospel, chapter 7, we read that Jerusalem was filled with Jews who wanted to kill Jesus. Now, I've had a few people in my life who hated me. And they've told me to my face, I can't stand you. Okay, that's fine. It's not been very Christian to say I feel the same, but you try and keep it to yourself. But I try to keep away from people who don't like me. Generally speaking, it's, it's good for your health. So, John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 1, the Jews in Jerusalem wanted to kill Jesus. So where did he go? Did he say to his disciples, let's have a few weeks down in, 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 in sort of Beersheba? He says he went to Jerusalem. Jesus, I don't like to tell you what to do, but there's people there who don't like you, who want to kill you. If you want to take my advice, don't go to Jerusalem. But he went. And it gets worse. He actually went to the temple. Oh, Lord, don't. That's, that's the stronghold of the Jews who don't like you. And then at the end of John chapter 7, he stood up and with a loud voice, oh, don't shout. They'll know you're here. If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And he who drinks out of his innermost being will flow a river of living water. Chapter 8. I am the light of the world. Oh, no. Are you trying to get yourself killed? Jesus, right throughout the Gospels, read it, he always looked a mob in the face and came away with salvation. 
And so in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, when Jesus was in Nazareth, we're told that they wanted to throw him over a cliff after the sermon. It just says, he quietly walked through the crowd. They didn't touch him. But truly, the most powerful example of that is when we come to Calvary. If ever there is a storm in Scripture, it is the cross where Jesus Christ was crucified. Have you ever thought about the cross in this way? The full weight of God's law was upon him. Have you ever come under conviction of sin? I don't mean that you just feel bad, but a real sense of agony of sin that you've You've done something that grieves the Lord, and just saying sorry doesn't seem to work. Your conscience doesn't seem eased, and you're wrestling. When you read people's testimonies throughout the history of the Christian church, you read of people coming under great conviction that sometimes lasted for two or three days. What is that? That is, that is the weight of conscience in relation to God's law. And this man had the weight of God's law resting upon him. And then... Here comes the vile malice of the devil. Scripture says, now is your hour of darkness. Oh, the devil was there without any doubt at all. And then there is the sting of sin. The sting of sin is death. Jesus knew he was going not to a party. He knew he was going to die. I don't know how you would cope with the fact that you know you're going to die tomorrow publicly. With the weight of the law and the malice of Satan. And then the whole rejection of mankind, he came to his own, and his own received him not. And on top of that, there is the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? It is hell itself. For there is the manifestation of God's wrath. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ with the weight of the law and the vile malice of the devil, with the sting of sin, with the total rejection of mankind, that even his father turned his back on him. And Jesus went into the very heart of Calvary and came out of it with salvation. There's a very powerful hymn, which is the 90 and 9 that safely lay. And one verse in that hymn says this, none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed and how dark was the night that our Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that were lost. I don't think any of us know what Calvary was really like, but it was a storm. And the Lord Jesus set his face as a flint to go to Calvary and to endure all of that and because he went into the heart of the storm, he looked a mob, as it were, in the face. He came out of that with salvation. And three days later, he rose from the dead, triumphant, having succeeded. And I say to myself, David, salvation that you receive has come from a man who went to the very heart and brought out salvation for you. And how is one saved? by going to him who went to the heart of the storm and receiving from him eternal life.
And friends, if he went to the heart of the storm for us, and all these people I've pointed out in Scripture went into the heart of the storm or looked a mob in the face and came over his salvation, I am fast coming to realize in my own personal life, now is the time for us to stop running away and to stand up and to look a mob in the face. These are unprecedented days in our country. You can't say this, you can't say that. But what can you say? Very little. What? You may offend people. I'm not saying we should be rude or we should be offensive, but it's time the Christian church and those who call themselves Christians stand up and start to walk into the storm. Because if we don't do it, who's going to do it? And it's all right me, and it's all right you going, oh, I love Noah. Oh, I love, I love Jonah. I love all these great people of the Old Testament, Moses, and I love Daniel. And my favorite story is those three men thrown into the fire. It's all right saying we love this stuff, but doing nothing about it. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 2 and verse 13, here's the resurrected Jesus speaking to the church in Pergamos. He said, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Wow. Imagine dwelling where Satan has his throne. It almost seems that's where we're living these days. And that is where the church should be. Where Satan has his throne, where the storm is the greatest, where the opposition is most vile, but we're not ashamed to say, if I die, I die. If I live, I live. But God is God, and I will not dishonor his name. You see, that may call martyrdom. Well, martyrdom may be part of it, but a martyr is a person who loves the truth more than they love their life. What's more important, my life or the truth? Daniel, what's more important, the truth or your life? Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, what's more important, the truth or your life? Jeremiah, what's more important, the truth or your life? I don't know if you read the poems of Rudyard Kipling. Interesting character of Mr. Kipling, but one of his poems is called Mulholland's Contract. He wrote it on the 6th of June in 1895. Mulholland's Contract is about a man who was a cattle handler on a boat. And on one occasion he was on this boat, as was his job, when a violent storm broke out. And as a result of the storm, the cattle broke loose. I mean, I've got the best of flyers. But when you read things in the newspaper, it just confirms why I generally am not in love with flying. He said a plane the other day was flying somewhere, 
and a horse that was on the plane, not in a seat, by the way, but in the cargo, it broke loose. I'm thinking, oh, no. Imagine being on a plane where a horse breaks loose. Get me down as fast as possible. So imagine being on a cattle boat where the means of keeping the cattle safe suddenly snap and all these cattle are running all over the boat in a storm. Mulholland's on the floor. He's on the floor saying, God, save me, save me. If you get me out of this, I'll become a missionary, a minister. I'll do anything, God. Well, God gets him out of the storm. And even though the cattle are around, they don't stand on Mulholland. And he lives. Then he has to start honoring his, his prayer. Do I become a minister or a missionary? Kipling writes, and I spoke to God of our contract, and he says to my prayer, I never put on my ministers no more than they can bear. So, Mulholland, go back to the cattle boats and preach my gospel there. Don't go to a theological college. You go back to the cattle boat and there live for me. I sometimes wonder if we have too many people in Christian ministries just entertaining Christians. We need more Mulhollands on the cattle boats of life where the real people of life are sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus. When I was on the road for three and a half years, I'd been a pastor of two churches, and then after being in one church for 13 and a half years, my time there had come to an end, and I went on the road for three and a half years. I had more contact in those three and a half years with unbelievers than I had in the previous 23 years. Why is that? Because as soon as you get involved in Christian things, your world closes down. And all you do is keep Christians happier and unhappy. How is our society going to be impacted by people who, like John Wesley, look a mob in the face and are not ashamed to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know what God is doing in your life and what he's saying to you. Who knows, God may use this to speak to you very, very powerfully to say, before you go any further down the road you're going, have you considered going back to the cattle ship and being my witness there. Friends, may we be part of a church that is not ashamed to look a mob in the face. And if we die, we die. If we live, we live. But one thing is certain, whether we die or live, God is glorified because his truth is honored. Now is the time for me and for us to wake up and be filled with the courage that only God can give. Not to be bullish, not to be arrogant, but to be like the Lord Jesus, afraid of no one. Why? because we're in a right relationship with him, the Lord. And when you're in a right relationship with the Lord, you have nothing 
to fear. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the many illustrations in your word of people who looked a mob in the face and didn't run, but stood for you. And Lord, it's all right doing Bible studies on these people and eulogizing them and praising them and saying there are heroes, but we go in the opposite direction. Thank you for our Savior who went right into the heart of the storm, but was not overcome, but came out with salvation. He came out victorious, and we live in his victory. Lord, if there's somebody here who has some big decisions to make about what they do and maybe being intimidated in certain situations and wondering, where do I go next? Father, use these words to help them make the right decision to glorify you even in the face of a mob and in the eye of a storm. Father, if I'd been wrong on this, just wash it out of our minds. But if this is of you, underline it by your Holy Spirit, because I ask it in our Savior's courageous name. Amen.